You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. If you're new to Seabreeze, um, I don't have a name tag on because, well, the wind prevented us from setting them out. So my name is Bevan. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are so glad that uh, you've joined us on this first Sunday of the new year. Now, we had planned to start this new message series, a three-part message series, with a different message this morning, but a last-minute illness... Uh, change those plans. So I'm going to give the message that I've been working on. I plan on giving it next Sunday, so I'm giving it today. So what that means is if you grab an outline uh, for today's message, that's not the message you're going to hear, okay? So don't get confused. You'll hear that next week. If you would like to take notes, just flip that insert, and there's some, some notes on the backside, so you can do that. If you're using the app to access notes, it's wrong, and I can't, I can't help you. Like I said, this was a last-minute deal. So, Now, the point of the, of the new year that we've just uh, gone through is not just to mark the passing of time. Uh, the real purpose of it is to be kind of an annual reminder of how, uh, how fast time moves and how important it is for us to make sure that we're making progress with the time that we've been given. Now, in the New Testament, the church is described as the place that we make the most progress toward the most important destinations in life. This is a very important statement. It really summarizes uh, what the New Testament says about the church and our relationship to it. And so as we start this new year, we're going to talk about where we're heading as a church, as, as this church, Seabreeze, and the important part that you can play in helping us progress in this direction. Now, as a church, we don't um, just look to the future and consider all the possible things that we could try to do and destinations we could try to move as an organization and just pick one or two or three that sound good to us. Now, as followers of Christ and as a Christian church, we have a, a map that we need to consider in doing that. And of course, the map is the Bible. The Bible is how God gives us directions as individual followers of Jesus Christ, and he gives us directions as churches. And there are six verses in the Old Testament book of Isaiah that have been particularly helpful to me as I have sought after God's direction for us as a church. And we're going to go through these six verses this morning. Um, Isaiah was, was a prophet of God in the 7th century B.C., and he lived at a time of tremendous upheaval and turmoil. The Assyrian Empire was advancing uh, from the north, and they were conquering more and more of his homeland of Palestine every year. And then from the south, the Egyptian army would conduct uh, frequent raids and capture different cities to the south. And so this was a time of, of fear. It was not a time of big dreams and hopes. And so when it comes to Picking a destination, where, where are we going, is the theme of this series. When it comes to picking a destination, that's, that usually requires some level of hope, uh, some kind of excitement, some anticipation uh, of a better future, and that's why you pick a destination. In fact, this last Sunday, we got together with some friends to celebrate uh, the new year coming in. And one of the topics of conversation that, that came up uh, a few times during the night was some of the trips that several of the individuals in the group had planned for 2024. And whenever they talked about um, a destination that they were going to head to and, and when that was going to happen, 
there was hope in their voice and there was excitement. And that's the way it is when we pick a destination. But Isaiah is not a book in the Bible that's really characterized by excitement and hope. In fact, the first half of this book of Isaiah, the prophet gives God's perspective on all of the chaos that's going on in the world right then. In the last half of the book, Isaiah accurately predicts the rise of the Babylonian Empire that's going to destroy the new Assyrian Empire, and then he goes on to predict the rise of the Persian Empire, which would in turn destroy the Babylonian Empire. Now, these are empires that hadn't existed yet. Assyria was on the rise, but no one knew about Babylon. No one knew about Persia. And and what God is revealing through the prophet is these empires are going to rise and they're going to fall and wars are going to come and wars are going to go. And it kind of has this feel of it's just going to keep being bad. It's going to be hard. It's going to be chaotic. And so in the middle of these two sections, these two halves of the book of Isaiah, there are these six verses that really represent a message of hope in the middle of the chaos. Because right in the middle of that book, God says, and here's the destination I have for you. Here's where I want you to go if you're going to follow me. Now, it's been 2,700 years since these words were written, inspired by God through the prophet Isaiah. But the world is still in chaos. So I think we need this important map from God to point us towards the destination he has for us individually and as a church. So let me read these six verses, and then we're going to kind of unpack these as we go through. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, here's what it says. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So Isaiah was a prophet of God sent to the people of Israel. But this part starts with an interesting beginning. This is addressed to you islands and distant nations. The point that's being made here, God wants to make it very clear, these words are for everyone. Now, The words of the Bible really are for everyone, but if you've read through the Bible, it's very clear that some of the words do not mean that you're supposed to do exactly those things now. There are parts of the Bible that were written as instructions from God for a specific time and a specific place. For example, if you read through the Bible, you'll come across detailed construction plans for the tabernacle. Don't start building the tabernacle. That's not the point of those words right now. Or there's a lot of words about God's laws on the restrictions for food. That was to keep his people alive and healthy as they traveled in that part of the world. But those, Jesus made it clear, those those no longer apply to us. 
So it's usually very obvious if these words have immediate application for us or if they were for a different time. But here's the problem with that. People tend to ignore the parts of the Bible they don't like by saying, oh, those words don't apply to me anymore. That was just for people way back in the ancient times. We are in a different time. And what God is making really clear by this introduction is you can't do that with these verses. What God is saying is, listen up, everyone, even you islands and you distant nations, that would be us. So now that God has our attention, what great plan or what destination is he going to reveal to us? Well, he begins, first of all, by focusing on just one person, and that person is Isaiah. And that's because God's plan, the great destination that God has for us, always begins and always involves us as individuals. It always involves the person. This is the first point, if you're taking notes on the back of that, that, that uh, original set of notes. God's plan always starts with the person. And that's because you and I aren't just inhabitants on the planet. We're not just scenery. We are a central part of God's plan. And Isaiah gives three evidences that are true in his life, and by extension are true in our lives, of how important we are to God. The first piece of evidence is that we are called by God. We are called by God. This is what he says, before I was born, the Lord called me. What does it mean to be called? Well, if you call someone, it's because you have a purpose. You have something in mind. After the last service on Christmas Eve, I was eating something and I chipped a tooth. Now, thankfully, it didn't put me into extreme pain, but I called the dentist. The reason I called a dentist is because I had a chipped tooth. There was a purpose behind that call. So to be called by God indicates that God has a purpose for us. He has an assignment for us. And Isaiah says this call predates our birth. Before we're even born, God has some plans for us. He has an assignment for us. Now, what this means is that if we are going to live 2024 to the fullest, as you often hear people say, I'm going to live life to the fullest, what does that mean? What that really means in God's mind is that we get as clear as we possibly can about what God's assignment for us is. And we do that in 2024. So we are called by God. That's the first evidence of how important we are to him. The second evidence is that we are named by God. Isaiah goes on to say, from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. Now, when we name someone, or if we're children or we're naming stuffed animals and objects, we name them because they have value to us. If there's no value, there's no name. The fact that you have a name indicates you have tremendous value. I watched um, one of the Star Wars movies with uh, some of my grandkids on New Year's Day. And I hadn't watched the Star Wars movie in a while, but it just reminded me of how many stormtroopers just die in these movies. I mean, they can't shoot, and they just are always being shot. And the other thing that I noticed was that if you're a stormtrooper, you don't get a name. You get a number, right? TK421. That's a number. Hopefully, that's not your name. 
Because if you've got a number, what that means is you're just like a part that came off an assembly line and you, you have no real value. You're just a number. And so these soldiers, they don't matter, so they're just given a number. But we are not nameless soldiers in the plan of God. We are named by him. We have value. And then the last piece of evidence is the fact that you are gifted by God. Here's what Isaiah says. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. What does this mean? Well, it turns out God's plan for Isaiah, long before Isaiah knew it, and you can read in Isaiah 6 about how God made this clear to him, but God's plan for Isaiah was to speak truth to his people. So to match that assignment, he made his mouth like a sharpened sword in order to be able to speak clearly, like a polished arrow where the truth could just sing, get right to the heart. So the question that you and I need to really be clear on is, what is God's assignment for us, like I said? Well, a good place to find an answer to that is to look at what God has given you. We've all been given opportunities. We've all been given abilities and talents. We've all been given resources. Those are an indication of what his call is on your life, what his assignment is for you. So how has he gifted you? Now, the thing about gifts is they're often hidden, concealed, as Isaiah says. And what that means is I can't look at you and see all of your gifts. And because of that, it's often easy for us to forget how many gifts God has given us and to think further about, now, what does God want me to do with that? Because these gifts that God has given us, they not only need to be discovered and understood, they need to be sharpened. They need to be polished, as it says. Because if the gifts aren't developed, if they're not used properly, they will rust like any tool that's being described here. So what all of this means, the fact that God called you, that he named you, that he gifted you, what all of this means is that your life has a purpose. And the purpose is not just to do whatever you please. This is where we tend to get off track. We go searching for, well, what would I want to do? And what would I like to accomplish? But that's not big enough. We are called and named and gifted to be a part of God's plan. That should be our main pursuit in life. So that's where it begins, the person. If we don't get clear on this, everything else gets kind of wonky. The second point that I want to make out of these verses deals with the place. The person, you, the place is the church. This is the place where God intends for our call, our name, and our gifts to converge in accomplishing what he wants done. Here's the next thing that we read in these six verses in Isaiah. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Now, what's surprising about that is everything up to this point has been about Isaiah the individual. So you'd think 
it would go on to say, after he talks about the fact that he has called Isaiah, he's named Isaiah, he's gifted Isaiah, then the next thing you would expect is he said to me, you are my servant Isaiah. But it says you are my servant Israel. Well, Israel's not a person, it's a bunch of people. So that's now the servant is now identified not just as the individual, but as the nation. Why? It's because God's plan for us as individuals always involves serving him together in the larger community of faith. In the Old Testament, the community of faith was Israel. If you weren't born in this community, lots of people moved once they heard about the God of Israel to become a part of Israel because they wanted to follow this God. Now, Jesus came to establish his church, which the New Testament calls the Israel of God. That's mentioned in Galatians 6.16. So we are now what Israel was in the Old Testament. We are now the community of faith, the church around the world. So the point that is being made here is that the group that God is working through, now the church, this is not just an optional addition to your life if you want to be a part of God's great plan. This is a non-essential part of it. Now, in our culture, whether an individual uh, church does well or doesn't do well is about as important as whether a frozen yogurt shop makes it or not. I mean, that's, that's usually the way most people think of it. Now, if you like frozen yogurt, uh, you don't like to see any Froyo shop fail, right? <laughs> but it doesn't really bother you unless it's your Froyo shop. You know, a few years ago, our favorite place went out of business. And we were disappointed. I mean, let me describe our disappointment. It's like, oh, really? Bummer. <laughs> we found another one, you know? And the reason it's just slightly bothering is because there are lots of other places. But I say this because this is not just how our culture views church. This is how many Christians now tend to view church. You know, if their, if their church dies, ceases to exist, or if they don't like the flavors, that the new flavors that are being offered, they go to another one. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to go to a different church. What I am saying is it should be for a reason much bigger than flavor, because the church is much more than a froyo shop. One of the times I I often encounter this view of the church is when people decide to move for different reasons out of the community, which is fine. But as you listen to them talk, it becomes clear they haven't really thought much or even selected a church in the place where they're moving to. They spent all kinds of time looking at, you know, how much houses cost, looking if they got kids, looking at the schooling. They've they've figured out the economics of it. They've figured out how they're going to maybe retire there. But they haven't really looked into the church. And if you ask them, well, so what about a church? They'll respond kind of like you're asking, where are you going to get your frozen yogurt? It's like, well, I'm sure they got shops there. They're everywhere. And at one level, they're right, but... A church is a much bigger thing than a frozen yogurt shop. Now, I say this because, I'll just be honest, I did not use to have, and I've mentioned this before, if you've been around, you know this, I didn't have a particularly high view of the church, which is 
kind of weird because now I'm a pastor. The reason I didn't have a, a really high view of the church is I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad was also a pastor. And so this was the last thing I wanted to do, not because my dad was, was a bad man. He was, he was great. My family was great. But because of that growing up environment, I got kind of an inside look at how ugly church life can get. And if you've been around church for a while, you know that just because it's a church, it doesn't mean everyone behaves correctly or treats each other rightly. That's one of the reasons we have hard attitudes we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks as a church, or actually next week. I'm getting the messages confused because they're switching. We will talk about the hard attitudes, which are seven, seven ways we relate to each other. It's kind of a, a personal contract of conduct, the way we relate to each other, because Church is made up of people, and people are people. And we're not necessarily always that amazing. So what that meant for me was in my 20s, I became a critic of the church. I would go to church, not regularly, but occasionally, and every time I walked into the church, I immediately started making a list of, yeah, that's wrong, or that person's not friendly, they should be friendly, or that pastor, he's boring, or... I don't know why they're talking about this. I mean, I just make a list. I don't like this song. That musician is offbeat. You know, I, I, would just, I would just make a list. And I became kind of a professional critic. But then I, I was reading through the New Testament, and I came across the idea that I'd heard that before, but as I was reading it, it really stuck with me. The New Testament describes the church as the bride of Christ. And as I was thinking about what that meant, what I realized is, I wasn't married at the time, but I realized that if, if I wanted to become an enemy of a man, I would criticize his wife. I mean, if, if you just, don't try it. Just imagine. <laughs> if you walk up and have something critical to say about a man's wife, get ready to duck. Any man worth his salt is going to come after you because he's, he's going to defend his wife's honor. And at that moment, I, I almost, it was almost like a visual image of Jesus getting ready to swing at me. And I thought, oh my goodness, what have I been doing? I sensed the anger of Christ, and, and really I sensed Jesus saying, knock it off. And that began to change my view of the church. And one of the things I realized shortly after that is that we are the bride of Christ not because of how good-looking we are. I mean, when I chose my bride, it was because of how good-looking she is. That's why we went on the first date. That's not what Jesus did with you and me. Jesus didn't say, wow, look at those people. They're amazing. Look at the moral quality of their life. Oh, no. In fact, Ephesians 5, 25-27 describes... It this way. It's talking about marriage, but it goes on to talk about Christ. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And by gave himself up, we know what that means. He died to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus loved the church, which is you and me, and died for her to make her holy, which means she isn't 
wasn't holy at the beginning, to wash her with water, which means she's not pure. Now he's in the business of cleaning us up. And he will present us eventually as radiant. The, the idea is head-turning. Right now, we're not head-turning. We might sometimes be cringeworthy. But there will be a time where we will be presented without stain, without wrinkle, without blemish, and he will do this. And we are called to cooperate together in this great cleanup effort of our lives. So the, the church is not a side project. It's not a, an optional, kind of like a Christian upgrade thing that you can do. It's at the center of everything that God is doing in this world. Ephesians 3, 10 through 11 says this about the church. His intent, God's intent, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities of the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I, I've memorized this verse, and I just oftentimes just pause to try to imagine what this actually looks like. It's talking about the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. We don't know exactly what that means or even what those beings look like. But I'm going to go out on not much of a limb and say they are much more impressive if we could see them than any of the rulers and authorities and movie stars that we have. I think, and there's some evidence in the Bible that when any of God's servants show up on earth, the first response of everyone is to bow down in fear and trembling in front of this great glory. So these are rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. These are people that we would be tempted to worship or beings we would be tempted to worship if we saw them. But what are they focused on? Their, their laser focus is on the church because it's through the church, the manifold wisdom of God. What that means is all the many facets of God's great wisdom is on display in the church. Really? So the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are not focused on global politics. They're aware of it, but that's not their focus. They're not focused on what Elon Musk is tweeting. They don't care about what Kanye West is doing. They're not concerned about whether Taylor Swift is going to be at the Chiefs game today. That's not what they're focused on. They are focused on gatherings like this. That's amazing. So what that means is the church, again, is a big deal. And that brings us to the third point that are made in these six verses, and that is the problem that we encounter. The problem is my results. Here's what Isaiah says. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing at all. Now that's, that's interesting. Because that's not the way the whole passage is going. I mean, it, it's rising in amazement. You know, it started with the amazing call of God on our lives as individuals. Then we discover that all this individual calling and naming and gifting is to be leveraged in service together in the community of faith. But now discouragement has set in. Really? Why? Because of a lack of results. If you look at the history, 
Isaiah was carrying out his assignment. He was doing it in the community of faith in Israel, and it just wasn't going well. People weren't listening to God, and the world seemed to only be getting worse. So at some point, Isaiah looked at all that was going around him and said, I don't, I don't know why I should keep doing this. It's, it's not accomplishing anything. And Isaiah is doing what we all tend to do. We look around us, see what our eyes can see, and we measure the results in personal terms. Notice the pronouns that Isaiah uses. I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength. That's all first person. It's all about him. And we tend to do this with the gifts that God has given us. We, we just, without even thinking about it, we make them about us and about our glory. We try to cash in God's personal gifting for personal gain. And when we do that, when we forget that we've been called, named, and gifted for a bigger purpose, and we make it about us, two things happen. It makes us the boss and God the servant. Now, nobody would say that. Nobody would say, yeah, I'm in charge here, and God exists for my benefit. But when something doesn't go right, what happens? We get angry at God. Why? Because he didn't do what we think he should do, which is what? Serve us. This just happens. It happened to Isaiah. It happens to us. So rather than leave what we get in life in God's hands, you know, we, we, we rather than wait for God, the reward, whatever it is, to be in his hands, we try to take it into ours. We now work for our reward, however we define it, rather than wait for whatever God has for us. And the second thing that happens when we switch this is our goal becomes to gain honor for us rather than gain honor for God. But as Isaiah says, he goes on to remind himself, really, God formed us in the womb to be his servant. We are his servant, not the other way around. And we will never find happiness any other way. And what happens is if we seek to honor God with our lives and we make him the boss and not us, then we will look back on our life and we will see maybe not the most amazing results, maybe we will, but what we'll really see is that God has been our strength. I turned 65 this year. I'm old enough now to look back and see. I remember how God was my strength in my 30s when our kids were young in this church was struggling. I, I, I remember in my 40s when I went through the Isaiah phase when I felt like this, there's no point in this. I have seen God's strength in my life. This is the only way we can experience the happy new year that we all just wished for. Now, to the point of the message, we finally arrived at the destination. What's our destination? Put simply, to extend beyond us. Let me read the verse, and then we'll, we'll talk about what this means for us as a church. He says, God says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now, when Isaiah wrote this, the big goal on the mind of 
every person was to rebuild what the Assyrians had just destroyed. And that's not a bad thing. It's no small task to rebuild a city, to rebuild a nation, as it's talking about here. But God says that even nation building is just too small for them and for us. It's too small of a thing. God has something much bigger in mind for them and for us. What he has in mind is he intends for those of us that he calls and names and gifts, he wants us to be part of bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. So should we all quit our jobs and go somewhere to the end of the earth? Well, notice, I want you to notice a key word. The word is also. It says, I will also make you a light. Also means in addition to. In addition to what? The other parts of your assignment. This isn't the only assignment from God. What they were doing was fine. It just wasn't enough. If you're a parent, that's a great assignment from God. And if your kids are little, that's about the only assignment you can probably see. It's just going to consume your days. But also, that's not enough. If you're an employee, that's going to take up 40 plus hours of your week. That's a lot. But it's not enough. But also, if you own a business, that's going to consume much more than 40 hours of your week, at least initially if you're trying to get it off the ground. But as good as that is, that's not enough. But also this. It's not enough for us to live inside the walls of our everyday world is what this is saying. It's just too small. And that's why we keep moving from this thing to that thing to that thing, because none of it is big enough. We were created for bigger destinations. So how can we just add this bringing God's salvation to the ends of the world to our everyday lives? I mean, that's a big thing. How do we just add that? Well, we can't on our own. That's why God's plan from the beginning was to be a part of the community of faith, in this case, the church. As we're part of a church, we can be parents, and we can have jobs, and we can own businesses, but we can also team together to extend the light of God beyond these walls. So what does all of this mean for here and for now, for Seabreeze, for this church? For us as a church, we're going to advance towards this destination as a church on really on two tracks. Think of train tracks. There's two tra tracks we're going to move forward on. One is by building relational bridges into this community, we'll extend into this community. And number two is by starting new churches and ministries beyond this community. This is not something new for us. This is something we've been working on, but we want to focus with greater intentionality on these. If you've been around Seabreeze the last few years, you've heard some of this. You know, this past year, we focused our attention on building seven intentional bridges into our community. And we started one new ministry on the campus of Orange Coast Community College to be a light to that campus. This is just the beginning of what we hope will continue and grow. You know, I looked it up. Um, you know how many cars pass by on Gothard every, every week? No, it's every day, actually. The, the last study I could see on the, the city website was 2012, so I don't know if it's more or less, but 
2012, 17,000 cars drive by this site every day. Every Sunday, uh, about 700 of us gather here at this church. That's a lot of people driving by who don't turn in. Why? Many have no interest in this. But many, many are interested in spiritual matters. I mean, you hear evidence of it all around. They just have misconceptions about this. And they don't know anyone who might challenge or correct those fears just by knowing them. This is why we extend ourselves beyond these relationships to build bridges to those who are not part of any church. You know, many of you are helping out with our upper basketball season that just kicked off, the, the games kicked off yesterday. If you were here, just a lot of fun. This is one of the biggest bridge efforts we do each year. And over the years, many people sitting in this room have found the light of God by crossing that bridge. Many of the bridge-building efforts are much smaller, like, and, and really not church-initiated at all. Some of them are just, you know, a group of moms getting together, going to a park, trying to meet other moms. Some of them are just a group of guys getting together to surf and all kinds of other activities. We do this because it's too small of a thing to build our careers and our families and fund our retirements. That's just not big enough. We have been called, named, and gifted to be a part of extending God's light into the world. Now, in the coming years, God's going to lead some of, maybe you, to move away not because you're retiring or moving somewhere for work or because of family, but simply to be a part of starting a new church, like the one we prayed about in Reno. And when that occurs, that's going to be a big sacrifice for you. And honestly, it's going to be a big sacrifice for us. And a lot of training is needed to start a new church or a new ministry. You know, I was, I was a part of starting new businesses before I did this. And I was a part of probably eight startups. And about three of them succeeded and five of them didn't. New businesses are hard to start. New churches, new churches are harder to start. The survival rates are much lower. So it takes a lot of training to start a new church or ministry. That's why we partner and we have been for several years now with three other churches here in Southern California to do a five-year training program for those who sense that God might be calling them into doing this professional ministry. We call it the Antioch Project. And through this project, over five years, those who participate in this have the option of earning a fully accredited master's degree. That's how rigorous the training is. So far... Ten students from Seabreeze have graduated from this, and 13 are currently enrolled. And a few of these will go to start new churches and ministries. But the rest of us that don't go, we can still be a part of that. You know, the training is called the Antioch Project because the city of Antioch was the first city that sent out anyone to start new churches in the New Testament. They are the ones that sent out Paul and Barnabas to start new churches. 
Paul and Barnabas just, just didn't decide one day, hey, let's do this. No, a church recognized them and sent them out. They were supported by a church full of people with everyday jobs who gave so that they could go. Back in 2004, if you were with us, you remember this, we entered escrow on this land. The price tag was $5.4 million, a steal in today's market. But it was unbelievable back then because we only had $250,000 to go towards the $5.4 million. And it's a long story, but... When the offices are completed, God willing, later this year, we're working on that in that part of the site, if you total up the cost of that land and the money we spent on these buildings and the new kids' building and the courts and all that kind of stuff, we will have spent a total of $18 million over the past 20 years. Now, this is what I want you to hear when you hear $18 million. I want you to kind of laugh to yourself and say, only God could do that. I mean, seriously, you start with $250,000 and you arrive here 20 years later, that's the hand of God. If, if you wonder if God is real, just be a part of something like this and you will see it. Now, I say this because I want you to know if you've been a part of this or if you decide to be part of it now, I want you to know what we've been building is a lighthouse in this community and God willing beyond us. That's what we're establishing something that can go beyond us, beyond this generation, and continue to be a light to the world. So that's our destination. Building relational bridges in this community and starting new churches and ministries beyond this community. There'll be much more to say about this as we move into the future, but I want you to have the big picture today. See what we're about, where we're headed. Because none of this can happen just because someone like me stands up and says, hey, let's do this. It only happens if enough people like yourselves decide, you know, God wants me to be a part of this too. And you leverage your call and your name and your gifts to do this. One takeaway I want you to have this week personally, and I'm going to do this, so I invite you to join me in this. I, I'm going to start each day this week and the first thing I want to do when I sit down, spend time with God, is this. I want to remember the fact and thank God that he has called me, that he has named me, and that he has gifted me. And then I want to say, God, in light of that, I am your servant. What do you want me to do today? Just start your day with that. Let's pray. Father, um, it's, it's really hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that from the womb, from before birth, you, you called us, you gave us an assignment, you gave us a name to reflect who we are and what our value is to you. And then you gave us a set of gifts. Those of us that have had kids, we, we see how different all the kids are and the different abilities and orientations they have towards different abilities and accomplishments and we just see your hand of gifting and we thank you for that and what it means and yet it's so tempting for us to leverage all of this attention and all of this gifting and try to turn it cash it in just for ourselves but in doing that we are miserable 
And that's because you called us, named us, and gifted us so that we might be a part of what you're doing. I pray for everyone in this room as we start 2024 that you would give clarity to them on what their call is and whether this is the place where you want them to leverage their call, name, and gifts to accomplish what you want done. We thank you for what you've done among us, and we look to the future with tremendous hope of what you will yet do. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.